First off, I want to introduce our host. I'm absolutely thrilled he's chosen by by means of me twisting his arm to do it once more. Um, he was brilliant last time out. I'm sure he will be even excelled beyond his last time this time. He's the chairman of um, of the advisory board for Altamira. Um, dot AI, if you want to look them up. He's also the founder of a tech startup um, in the education space called Cormiris. And again, I know Phil, you probably will probably do a feature later on on, on Cormiris and what you're going to do and how you're going to um, navigate your way through changing the education sector. So I'm really keen to uh, maybe we can explore that in a one-to-one a bit more in an interview and get out of there. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Phil Black. Phil, over to you. Thanks very much, Phil. Um, and uh, welcome to everybody. Uh, this is session number two of the uh, Technofresh sessions. Um, and I'm really excited for today. Uh, I mean, the topic of AI is one that probably gets talked about more than most, um, maybe on par with cloud, uh, with the people I talk to on a regular basis. Um, and I am delighted with the panel that we have. We have many decades of experience uh, in front of us, um, not just within AI, but in technology themselves and a, and a wide variety of backgrounds and applications. Um, so I'm going to just give a quick introduction um, to, to start off with, and then we'll get right into a discussion about all things AI. So uh, we got Varun Agarwal. Um, he's the co-founder of Aspiring Minds, uh, that was, um, which is a, a very innovative piece of hiring software and a company that Varun was building uh, for many years, all on the back of AI and machine learning and all those sorts of technologies. And he will be able to explain in far better detail um, the trials and tribulations of building such a company. Um, we have Felix Hovsepian, who is an author and a professor uh, in AI. Uh, I think uh, Felix has been uh, around this topic for, I won't say how many years, um, uh, but quite a few years, very experienced, um, and has seen a number of explosions of AI uh, bubbles uh, over the time. And um, uh, some uh, may not have quite met the expectations that were, were, were promised. So um, it's great to have you. And then we have Jonathan Rivers, who is the CTO of Fortune. Um, and Jonathan has got uh, a lot of experience working with different uh, technology firms and in different sectors uh, and has a huge experience of, uh, of building technology-based businesses. Um, so welcome all three of you. Um, I'm excited to have, have the conversation. So um, as we were preparing for this, uh, we have one-on-one -on -one conversations and just so we all kind of got some good talking points and we can weave it all together. Um, and we will start with some fairly easy ones and we'll warm up to some maybe more contentious topics uh, a bit later on. And, um, but I, I love the topic of AI. I remember going to university because of the AI piece of my computer science degree. And I left quite underwhelmed <laughs> by the AI back in the late nineties. Uh, although there was some pretty cool stuff around neural nets and, uh, and, and, playing chess against computers, which has obviously gone on a long way. And today we have automated vehicles. Uh, we've got amazing um, uh, medical diagnosis. We've got chatbots that kind of deal with many uh, facets of our lives. But there's a lot of confusion around the topic of AI, what it is, what it isn't, will it deliver on the promise, and actually how do we go about it within the business? So. 
just to start us off, and maybe Felix, if you would uh, give us a little bit of your background, some your experiences, and just give us a sense of your thought process when it comes to the topic of AI. I started off uh, as a mathematician, and I still am really, um, and, and got into, so that's pure maths. I got into applied maths, um, been in industry, worked for Fortune 500 companies like Deloitte's. But my real passion came um, around about the early 80s, 81, 82, when I was first introduced into symbolic computation. So that's do programs that would deal with symbols as opposed to numerics. Uh, from there, I got interested in machine reasoning. And that's been much of my career has been in sort of complex adaptive systems and machine reasoning. Um, but I hit the, uh, the, the second AI winter around about the late 1980s, early 1990s, got out into industry and, and really built a career up to a CTO um, in just classical uh, software and, and, and that domain. So it, it's really been, and I've been an academic for a decade or so. And today you're actually helping business leaders understand the concepts of AI within their own worlds, right? So you, you teach a class. Yes. Um, my goal really was to separate out the, the hype from reality, because I think there's an awful lot, uh, particularly in the media, which, which is anthropomorphizing the machines, which I think is a real danger. C-suite executives really understand what are the business applications of AI and how can it be of help to them rather than thinking of, of replacing a human being, you know, much like some of the machine people like to think that, you know, radiologists tomorrow will be replaced by. Well, I, and I think the reason why I pulled that last piece out is because the conversation with business partners like setting and managing expectations is going to be something that I think we're going to have to come back through a couple of times because it is it is something that we all have to deal with um, from time to time. So quick intro, the same for Varun, if you don't mind. Um, just a bit of your background. Uh, I, I forgot to mention you're also an author um, uh, as well, uh, which covers the topic of AI. Um, it just give us a bit more of a so, you know, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, I went to MIT way back to do a PhD program, but dropped out after my master's. Uh, and that time we were, I was doing machine learning and optimization and then built this company, which Will was talking about called Aspiring Mind. And, uh, the, and that's where we started using, uh, you know, machine learning. That's what we used to call it in those days. At some point it was called data science and then some point called AI by the media, uh, but started applying machine learning in our products. Uh, uh, you know, I think the first product we built was around in 2012, then uh, several other products uh, after that uh, uh, using machine learning. And our basic use case at that point of time was doing assessments. And uh, I can explain the, you know, the business case or the use case in 30 seconds is that if you look at traditional tests, they are multiple choice question-based tests where there'll be a question and there'll be a few options and the person has to choose the correct option. And when you are assessing a person that takes you only that far. So the AI use case is simply that if you give a person a question and they're replying with an open response, which is text or programs or spoken, uh, you know, a spoken response, how can you automatically evaluate that? Uh, and that's what we were using AI for. And uh, 
one of the jokes which I say and just says how AI has evolved in all these years is that the first couple of people I hired to do AI, uh, they came back to me after one year and said that oh, all of our friends are doing this software stuff and you're making us do this really funny stuff, which is which no one else is doing. So do we have a career? And I said, you just wait and watch, you know, <laughs> and we know how it has changed, uh, changed since then. Uh, so that's what I've been doing, building uh, AI-led products uh, for uh, in the assessment space and now more broadly in the hiring space. And so I'll be happy to talk more about that. And yes, I did recently write a book. It's a fiction. I have it here. It's called The Bird Farm. And it, it is inspired by the animal, by animal farm. And it looks at how technology has impacted our society. So when I was thinking about it a few years back, I thought that there was a promise and then the promise, uh, you know, materialized in a very different way than, than we thought. And it reminded me back of Animal Farm and a promise being made and realized in a different way. So that's how the book came about. Well, I hear good good things about the book, uh, Varun. So, uh, um, and you. you've, you've got a nice little audience here. So uh, you, you see the book sales go up and the royalties go up um, from today. <laughs> but it's really good. And, you know, thinking about the company that you've built, and where you're at now and all of the learnings through that, I think for many technology leaders, understanding what that looks like and the challenges and the trials and tribulations of building uh, machine learning uh, based products will be very helpful. And so you're, you're more of a, we built it from scratch, a native. Um, and now let's introduce Jonathan, who spends a bit more time working with uh, not greenfield sites, um, the opposite of a greenfield often um, and still has to uh, bring some of those ideas together. So would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jonathan Rivers, CTO of, of Fortune Media. Most people know it as, as Fortune Magazine, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on a course to turn us from a stuffy old business uh, magazine to a, a digital media company, which is, you know, it, it's an interesting challenge uh, where, you know, you really have to start building out capabilities where, you know, I joined Fortune two years ago uh, where I inherited a five-year-old website. Now I'm going to repeat that. Their website was this many years old. That's sort of frightening at how young uh, fortune was to this game and have really spent the last 18 months building out a large number of, of applications, really building out our distribution channels so that we can get our content so that we have all of the components that we need to be, uh, you know, to be a digital media company, uh, let alone before we really start innovating and advancing things. And prior to that, I've got about 20 years uh, in, in media. It's, it's interesting. I probably did what would be now classified as the first uh, sort of AI type build, which is really just machine learning, probably in the mid 2000s at an ad serving company that I was running at the time, where we, we hired a statistician to come in and analyze uh, advertising banner performance on websites, right? And so this is like 2009. And I literally used Amazon's Mechanical Turk service to have random people classify the picture of a banner, right? This banner has a car on it. This banner is for paint. It is for Pepsi. It is for beer, right? And then the statistician 
took all of those, those classified uh, uh, banner IDs and ran it versus performance, building out the statistical models in R to determine what types of banners performed better on what types of sites. Now, that took us three months and yielded very, very little interesting uh, you know, to say because it was so manual and, and we didn't really have the technology you know, uh, sort of Varun could probably attest that, a you know, his models could probably do all of that with computer vision in a couple of days. Uh, what it took us three months just to code the banners before he could actually run the models. And so it's, it's interesting thinking about the applied use of the technology now, how it's advanced and really how democratized the tools are. Uh, because the, the tools to do all of this, all of the software uh, is, is open source, it's all available, uh, but the actual knowledge of how to do it uh, and then how to actually apply what you've done becomes really, really critical and what I'm, I'm fascinated by these days. Excellent. And so like, before we get into a lot of the technical detail, let's just talk a little bit more about the business uh, stakeholder management and the expectation management um, side of life. So um like the hype that goes alongside ai when you do see you know robots dancing and uh, you know stories like that which are all cool and they're great um they're great uh, advancements in robotics uh, uh, and things like that but so how jonathan do you talk to your business partners because you're saying that you know they've got a big journey to go on i'm sure there's a lot of excitement about what the art of the possible is some things will be AI, others might just be automation of <laughs> stuff that can be automated, uh, which computing uh, folks have been doing for many, many years. But what, how are you managing their expectations and what are you talking to them about? I mean, you can tell I've talked to them about this topic a lot because I have no hair. I used to have a full head and, mm -hmm. and then trying to explain uh, AI to the C-suite has, has caused me to, to sort of go bald and age prematurely. Um, and, and so I've, I've given up, quit being pedantic when anytime they talk to me about AI, I go, it's not AI. None of it can reason, right? I've, I've stopped doing that because it just, it's a distraction and, and, and really just makes them mad uh, rather than informs them. And instead I lead with, it's not magic. And, and I think that's the, 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 the start because, because, and I'll use the term AI just for simplicity's sake for the, the, the part of this uh, sort of conversation. AI today is, no, is literally no different than any computer program in that if you tell it what to do, it will go and execute that. And, you know, those robots dancing, really great example because it, it looks so fantastic. Somebody told it how to dance. Mm -hmm. It told it what to dance to. It told it what dance moves are possible. It's not feeling the music. It's not interpreting the music. There's no actual reasoning there. It's not dancing because it wants to. That robot is dancing because it was told to dance or it was told to dance when music came on. And that's really where you have to frame a, a lot of this where a lot of AI is applying very, very fast reasoning or really fast sets of instruction to certain kinds of data for an outcome. And you're, you're, either, you're either trying to learn something 
you know, by I'm going to expose this to a lot of information and hopefully it's going to look through it and, and, and come up with, with certain insights, or it's, you're going to tell it to do certain things if it sees certain things, right? And again, it's not magic because, and, and, and this was the breakthrough that I had in really explaining it, because to apply it in a practical fashion, you have to know what something is, and then you have to tell it what to do when it sees it. There's no judgment call, right? If I, if I put a stack of bills in, in, in front of my accounts receivable person, they're going to make judgments about what gets paid when they're going to have instinct. They're going to, they're going to know the other things in the business, what the CFO wants. Uh, uh, an AI application has to be told to do with every, what to do with every bill and every permutation. And if not stop. And so that's really, it can do it really fast. Yeah. Uh, and it, it can do it with a low margin of error, which makes it great for process automation, but you still have to tell it what to do. And if you don't know what things are and you can't tell it what to do, then you shouldn't get started in the first place. Okay. So that's really good. And, and Felix, you know, when you're talking with um, business leaders uh, and people kind of, what are the big questions that they have in their heads or the big confusions that you're helping them wrestle with? I find that they have wonderful imaginations of what this technology has the potential of doing. And that's great, you know, it's wonderful to see that. The difficulty that I face is that maybe we're a hundred years away from that kind of technology. You know, we, we really don't have the underpinnings that we need in order to develop those kinds of solutions. I completely agree with Jonathan. And also I, I try and ask questions like, um, does it really matter whether it's AI or anything else, you know, whether it's cloud technology, AI, call it what you like, as long as it produces uh, a valid business uh, result. I mean, surely that's what we're really after, something that gives us a, a decent ROI. Um, and, and particularly, you know, I look at things like the healthcare sector or the education sector, um, and they can get some fantastic ROI simply by just fixing what they have. So I think it, it's important to take into consideration what is the problem you're trying to solve? I think it's not AI, but whatever the technology is, they feel that, you know, we don't really understand the problem. So we're just going to throw this software at it and it's going to figure it out for itself. And that's just not true. Mm. So trying to explain the capabilities, I think, is really uh, the main hurdle. So what, do, what does that look like, um, uh, Felix? So like uh, a lot of people that I'm talking to, especially in the entrepreneurial space, you know, every idea now has some form of AI component. I am guilty of this myself. Yeah. I, I can talk about that. <laughs> but like the, there, is an, there is an inherent uh, excitement for people with ideas that are going, oh, actually, if I can train it to do this, I can do it much more effectively. So there's kind of an explosion of ideas, all looking for money, all looking for capital. Right. Um, and, and so what do you, is it just about, well, just understand your idea as much as you can, or is there, is there something else uh, in that conversation that you're having with them? They hear things and they read things in the media. Mm -hmm. And that is my biggest hurdle in right. trying to sort of uh, explain to them that it's a wonderful result in the lab. Why don't we just wait for a month or two and see what happens when it gets taken out into the real world? Yeah. Um, and I spent probably about seven years in, in R&D in, in, in a sort of clinic. 
a clinical environment in the sense that it was a, a pure R&D in, 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 in academia. And you can write wonderful software and, and show what amazing capabilities it has. Yeah. And Google found this out the, the, the hard way when they took out their um, digital retinopathy out to Thailand, I believe it was. Um, and it, you know, they were claiming 95% accuracy on, on diagnosing diabetic retinopathy. They took it out into the field and the people just didn't want to use it, you know. And it, it's, it's explaining to them that, yes, it, it's great if you have really high resolution, clean images. So your data is wonderfully clean because you have control over all the equipment, how yeah. it's taken, everything else. Um, but once you take it out into the field and you have to deal with the fact that they don't even dark, darken the room because it's a school hall that is being used for doing those types of uh, imaging, that they realize that there are critical factors in the real world they've not taken into consideration. Kind of try to align the, the, the reality with R&D type solutions. Yeah, so, like, so I mean, that leads us back to kind of product development, creating yep. things that people are going to use, creating things that people might want, solving problems, serving needs. And obviously, I think we all agree that technology should do that generally, um, as should all products and services. So, Varun, now coming back to you, you built a company, you co-founded this thing, you probably had to raise money, get investors, at least get some backing to uh, to go build it like so how did you go through that process especially as you started you know many years ago before the current hype uh, that exists what what were your uh, approaches to setting expectations and managing that what has happened in today's world is felix was saying right that it has become such a big buzzword and in fact um, it attracts funding and it attracts customers and so on and when you look under the hood you know a lot of companies are not uh, using AI at all, or, you know, there's this joke that uh, you just was calling it, uh, log you're just doing a logistic regression and calling it AI, which is a simple uh, statistical technique, right? So, uh, so I think for, for us, uh, you know, when we were raising money and in that point of time, this hype was, we were in the pre-hype kind of period and we were, in fact, uh, our problem was different. We were educating our customer and investor in what we are doing, uh, why it is different uh, from other, what from others are doing and so on. But I think, you know, the biggest piece is that, uh, and Felix alluded to it, is that uh, today a lot of companies have mandates on saying that you use AI. They don't even know what problem they want to solve using AI, but they have this top-down mandate from the board and saying, use AI, right? And I have like talked to people who've said, oh, we want some help. And then I said, what help do you want? And they're saying that, you, you know, we want to use AI. And I'll say, what problem do you want to solve? And say, we don't know what problem we want to solve, but we want to use AI. Right? And that's, that's the uh, generation we are in right now. But I think what is most important is to, um, is to understand where you will use it and what value it is going to create for customers. And Phil, the question which you were asking was that how do you explain it uh, to business leaders? I think you can explain it in various different ways and there could be various different metaphors. Like you can say it's what algor algorithms cannot solve deterministically. It is some heuristic learning and so on. But at, at least I think what works best is examples and tell them that what kind of things it can solve. And as Felix was saying, right, uh, AI can do certain things today and it cannot do certain things today. You know, like uh, when you're talking about setting expectations, for example, if you go pre, you know, speaker independent speech recognition, which is being able to transcribe text 
from speech for any individual without speaker adaptation sorry for being very technical here but you know ju just being able to do speaker recognition was not solved a few years back it got recently solved that means that we could not have done uh, you know speaker uh, we could not have transcribed text for anyone just on the fly and you need to explain some of these things to the business leaders and uh, and uh, you know and the customers that this this is what is possible and this is what is not possible today and you can build products based on that now speaker recognition since then has got solved so that kind of opens up a new set of opportunities to build newer kinds of products which was probably not possible uh, before but just going back to the point uh, you know which i was trying to make is that you need to create these examples of where in the business it can create business value and then sift through those examples and say that what is giving you the biggest bang for the buck right yeah. put it on that effort impact kind of uh, matrix and see and i think that can only happen when you have people who do ai talk with product people and business people it kind of emerges bottom up you just cannot you know a business leaders cannot sit in a room and uh, figure out that how they will use ai uh, in their product so i think the way, the mechanism is that those ideas need to come bottom up and what business leaders can really then see is sort those ideas and say what creates the biggest bang for the buck and pursue those ideas See, so what, what I like about that, um, Baron, is the, you know, when you're thinking about product development, you've got some ideas or you're, you know, there's a there's a customer need that you can see. And then you go through an iterative human centered design process and we can that's probably a whole different topic. All of a sudden, we've got an extra aspect, though, which is how are we going to you know, create the algorithms? How are we going to train the data models? How are we going to do all of that good stuff as well as create a beautiful interface, create something that users actually want to touch and feel and play with. And, and, and so it, have you got any insights into kind of how that all fits together as a development process? Sure. And, you know, it is something uh, which we are even trying to do today with SHL, the company which acquired uh, Aspiring Minds. And to see that how does, uh, you know, how does AI fit in the whole pro product development life cycle? And I'll be honest, we are still learning the ropes of, uh, of how to do it. But, you know, the way it has generally worked for us is that we would engage with the product team at the beginning when we are thinking about the idea and trying to scope it and say what it can do and what it cannot do, right? Because AI has its limitations and we need to make sure that what we are building will actually create customer delight and not make the customer run away because for what it can do and it cannot do. And yeah. you, what you were saying, there's a very important aspect of uh, HCI in that, right? So if AI has its limitations, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you, pro uh, how do you provide that output to the customer so that it creates value, right? So if I provide it for this, if let's say, uh, you know, someone's asking a question and uh, I position what AI is generated as an answer uh, and that answer is wrong or quite wrong, you know, that's one problem with AI that becomes quite wrong at times. It's not like humans where it will be a small error, right? And they might just think this is foolish, but if you're not posing it as an answer, but as a recommendation, that kind of problem starts getting solved a little. And there's a very small toy example to understand how you know uh, how you present it and the UI, UX, and AI kind of uh, talk to each other. But going back to you know stepping back, you know the idea is that when you're starting to scope it and build it, that's the time we talk to the product leaders, uh, the business leaders, do this yeah. iterative thing with them. Then we go and sit in a corner. And we do the models because now we have, you know, got the sign off and, uh, you know, we are on the same page 
on what we're doing. And then we do the models and we sit in our corner, we collect the data, which is a whole topic in itself, right? Collecting data, getting good labels, building trustworthy models and so on. So we sit on the side and then when we have something uh, which is again demonstrable and integrable in the product, you know, and when we have a, a prototype, we don't need to do it the full and then we go back into the product and technology, uh, working with the product and technology teams to start instantiating it there. And then again, iterating with them because we may also learn some things during the modeling cycle on what is possible and what is not possible, which we thought differently yeah. uh, before. So I think it's this to and fro which uh, which needs to which needs to happen between the AI team and the product team. And I think for us, it's like we need to do it in the beginning. Then we need to set aside and then come back and do that iteration again. Great, that's that's really helpful. And I, I was just thinking about. Um, normally when I'm talking to people on this topic, we talk about well, what are the biggest challenges that you have? Um, data comes up pretty much standardly as the almost the number one after are you solving the right problem? So, so we've got, we've got number one kind of covered for a little bit there. I'm, I'm sure we can come back and discuss it a bit more. Let's talk about data a little bit more because you almost can't do anything without data and the strategy. Um, so Jonathan, I wonder if you could kind of give us a little bit of um, insight because I know you've been doing a lot of work of kind of laying the foundational aspects into your organizations in preparation for some amazing potential projects with AI. So yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things. The, the first is you need to go play detective. Um, and, and you know, to sort of Varun's point, Playing detective is a great way to figure out what problem am I trying to solve. When you start going in and you, you say with, a, with a, a sort of a very open mind, what data assets do I have? So I'm, I'm looking at all of the things that I have and what, what, what do I have that, that, that are data? Uh, and then, you know, how uh, sort of, okay, now that I know these things, what could I do with it? Are there business opportunities that, that I could do with this data, right? So I'm sitting, for example, I got to Fortune and I found out that I'm sitting on thousands of hours of executive interviews with the Fortune 500 CEOs going back 20 years. Thousands of hours of, of this executive insight. Now, I say to myself, Jonathan, that's probably valuable. Right. And, 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 and so that's that first start is you're, you're like, um, because so much of the conversation and, and, and I think everybody's going to laugh right now because the current business climate is logs plus magic pixie fairy dust of AI equals profit. Right. And, it, and it's a little different than that. Right. You're just not going to log file your way out of that. So after you've after you've played detective you then have to say, what transactions do I have? What, what data points are entering and exiting uh, my organization? And either going unapologetic and storing everything, right? I, I, I was lucky enough to talk to a, a UK company years ago, ShopDirect, who, who they had what they called an unapologetic data strategy where they would store anything and everything they can and then they would figure it out later. Now, if you've got the money, that's probably a pretty good way to go. You know, some liability concerns aside for sitting on stuff that might be problematic. But, but then looking at 
as I operate my business, here are all of the things, and then start building those storage strategy and getting storing stuff as, as quickly and accessibly as you can internally so that you're sitting on this large repository of data because you've looked at the assets you have, you, you looked at the transaction materials that are coming through, you, you've started storing them. Now that you have the assets, you have them cataloged, you have them available, that's when you can start ideating through what are the business problems that I'm trying to solve and do my data assets lend to solving them? And then is an AI application appropriate to utilize for that outcome? And that's like, for me, those are the steps for, for how you really sort of try and approach that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's really useful insight. Uh, Felix, would you add anything um, to this topic on data? I've got two things I'd like to add. First of all, um, I, I, I agree with Varun that when I was trained as a systems engineer, a number of these techniques that we are now calling machine learning appeared on a course that was called uh, optimization. You know, a lot of the sort of gradient descents and what have you, I thought were optimization. So um, the ideas have been around for a while. You know, these aren't, they, they didn't just pop out of nowhere in 2010. Um, my second, uh, I guess, concern rather than point was really to do with cybersecurity regarding um, data, because people are looking at uh, data and worrying about GDPR and privacy issues and what have you. Um, so I have two concerns in that area, one of which is to do with swarm intelligence, which we haven't really got to the point of worrying about. But prior to that is um, the adversarial examples that um, Ian Goodfellow talks about. Uh, which comes out of um, GANs, you know, the generative adversarial networks, which pretty much, uh, if you have a machine learning software on your system, you're vulnerable to one of these attacks because it, it can, one of the features that it, it has the ability to do is poison your clean data. Now, when you're storing 100 gigabytes of data, discovering which pieces have been poisoned is quite a challenge in itself. So there are unique challenges to machine learning and the reliance on data, et cetera, that I'm not so sure are there with regard to conventional software. You know, if you're building cloud architecture, then you're looking at uh, classical cybersecurity solutions, um, which don't have these kinds of vulnerabilities. Okay, uh, I mean that's a. I think uh, that's an interesting topic, and maybe we can touch uh, on more of that later. Because I, so I love this idea. Well, I, I hate this idea that you know you're building a data set and you've got and someone's just kind of poisoning the well. Uh, maybe you can teach us how to stop that, uh, Felix. Um, at some point, um, I'll let you think about it though. Oh, okay. you probably already have an answer. Uh, Varun, how about yourself in terms of data, data strategy, um, labeling, classification, any advice you would give people? Uh, bust a few myths uh, about it. You know, one, you know, people think if they have a lot of data, they can just magically apply AI on it. And that that is value, the value of it is billions of dollars. You really need to know what use case you're using the data for. And, you know, for most, AI algorithms, you need to label the data in some way, uh, right? I mean, and to explain it simply is that, uh, you know, if you want to do image, understand what is there in an image, you first need to have 
humans uh, say what the image is and the machine will learn on it. Of course, there are unsupervised ways as well, but you definitely need some supervisory data, uh, which is out there. So having a lot of data doesn't mean it's worth billions of dollars. That's the first thing. Second, you spend a lot of time just cleaning that data, labeling that data, and making it you know useful to do any machine learning, right? Like uh, most of the, I, I mean, I've really seen people who have done like machine learning in AI and it's totally garbage in, garbage out because their data is garbage and what comes out of it is also garbage. And because they've, you know, some people just look at, you know, are not trained well and they'll just look at the accuracy figure and say, oh, we got an accuracy. And when you just try to kind of unbundle it, uh, you know, it's not working. Like I was talking to a professor in a university and he said that, uh, you know, they were working on a question answer data set and the accuracy uh, was in, in quite a bit improved by their algorithm by changing the network a little. So they said, let's look under the hood. And somehow they found out that for that data set, the way it was laid out for a large number of questions, the second last version, uh, the second last word in the question was the answer itself. And that was happening for a large number of points. And that's all the machine was doing, uh, you know. So uh, data is not money. You have to spend a lot of time cleaning that data uh, and getting good labels. And the third uh, myth I would want to bust is that for all applications of machine learning and AI, it is not the case that you need billions of data points. You can do a lot of machine learning only with 500 data points, 1,000 data points, 10,000 data points, and so on. And as the field is progressing ahead, we now have a lot of pre-trained models which can be easily adapted with a few number of data points as well. In fact, if you look at a lot of problems which are solved in the industry, where you'll get the bang for the buck would be based on small data sets because you would never spend those all dollars to like label millions of data points, right? You would only do it for very broad applications. Like if you're trying to do speech recognition or solve object classification, which, which is a service you can sell to a lot of customers, but generally it would not generate you the kind of revenue to put that kind of an, an investment. And what you need to know as business leaders is, is that you can start using AI and even have data sets as big as thousand data points and it can start giving generating value for your business. Yeah, it is interesting how things like GPT-3 and the news around how much data has been passed through that in order to train it so it can create, you know, uh, novel textual things. Or I remember when IBM Watson was being pitted against doctors for diagnosis and they kept talking about how much data had been passed through it and this is the reason why it was doing so well so it's quite interesting that you're saying actually that's not always the case now um there are some use cases where you do need that but there are many uh pieces where you actually don't so it's quite uh, quite fascinating one of the things that struck me when we spoke um Baron, was about um the humanity of what you you're doing in particular so you were talking about one of the challenges that you saw which was about actually making human like so decisions that impacted humans and how you thought about that would you just share a little on that for us well, there's and this topic has uh, got a lot of visibility now which is about uh, the ethics of ai algorithms right and when you should use it and how they should be built on uh, to be ethical. And it's interesting, the field I come from, which is assessments, we have thought about this topic for quite long. In fact, in the US, there are laws around what you can use and what you cannot use because 
it's a, a very sensitive area where you are making decisions on humans. You know, what your test gives as a result might determine someone's employment or not, his or her economic status, his or her lifestyle, uh, et cetera. Uh, something which will be even more sensitive than that would be healthcare. You know, if you are making uh, healthcare decisions, uh, an AI algorithm is making healthcare decisions uh, and you diagnose someone uh, wrongly, that could have a very, very high cost, which may not be even, we cannot even put it in numbers, right? So, and versus, you know, and generally, this is how I give an example, whereas if you're using an AI algorithm to predict the stock price, you may not worry so much about the ethics of it. You may definitely worry about the financial impact which you might have if the algorithm uh, doesn't work well, but uh, not the ethics of it. And so what, when you are working in a field like ours, we need to do a lot of work to see, the stakes are fairly high, as I said, to see that the algorithm uh, is working right, it is working fairly. Is it, does it work well both for males and females, for example, or people of different races? Um, and, and that's where you need, uh, many times when you have these AI teams, they don't have good statistics background or statistics capabilities. And that is, you know, so what has happened in the field of AI is that if you look at the algorithms, they have been fairly commoditized and you can pick them up from the way that Jonathan was saying, it's a lot of it is out there and you can use it, but do you know how to use it right? And do you know that when you use it and you build these models, how to test these models and say that they are working? That's where you need a very deep statistical understanding. And unfortunately, what has happened, what is true for the whole world is that there are very few people who know both computer science and statistics, right? And maybe Felix is one of them, but there are very, very few such people, right? Which kind of uh, creates uh, creates this, uh, you know, creates this, big challenge that you are, have a team which is creating this algorithm, but they don't really know how to test them and say that, you know, the example which was being given again for Google and they went onto the field and the algorithm did not work. And uh, so that, that thing is still a challenge in AI that a lot of algorithms are brittle and people don't know how to test it well. I'll give an analogy which was given uh, by, you know, this researcher at Berkeley who's a father figure uh, in AI, his name is also Michael Jordan. And he gives this example where he says that if you look at civil engineering, uh, there is a, a set of rules on how you should build a bridge. And if you don't follow those rules and do those tests on a bridge, that bridge will fall. But do we have that for AI algorithm? Do we know that what are the steps and rules to build an AI algorithm and how to test it uh, uh, so that it will not, you know, it will not break? And for what circumstances will it break and what circumstances it will not break. And with the hype of AI working well in the lab, industry has come very fast lapped it, but they have not, they really that science of making sure that the algorithms are robust and how to do it is still evolving. It is coming out as some global standards which are coming, which one can follow. Uh, but I think that will take a few more years to get it, you know, get it into the, get it totally standardized and people know that when they will work or not work. And when we are making decisions on humans, this becomes like 100 times more important. So in my team, we need to do it very, very carefully, plus also cross domain knowledge, right? So we need to not only understand how AI works, but we also need to understand that uh, uh, something about psychometrics, something about human psychology, something about the science of assessments and make sure whatever AI models is saying is theoretically plausible. Otherwise, we run grave risk. So, so we had a question in the Q&A from Ian, which was, if you have a machine learning tool to do something, how do you know 
what it has learned and so trust what it does. And I think you're touching upon some of those uh, aspects there, Farron. I like Felix, would you, how, how would you answer Ian's question? Tread very carefully. <laughs> the, and as Varun was saying, one of the issues that we're really facing with machine learning is that um, we've got to the point where we can build these things. But how do we trust that the machine has learned what we hope it's learned is a problem we've faced in education for, for a very long time. I mean, you can teach you know, algebra and the students can respond to the tests that you set. That doesn't yeah. mean they've learned algebra. That's a problem we've, we've not been able to crack in education. And I think we're beginning to, to sort of see that in, in machine learning, in particular because a lot of the models are fragile. And by fragile, I mean, um, just sort of going back to this, this notion of adversarial examples, um, Ian Goodfellow was able to add some noise and, and some noise, I mean, you know, less than 1% of noise to an image that was clearly a panda. And the result was clearly a panda to any human being. But for the machine learning, it, it went from saying it's 60% a panda to 93% certain it was a gibbon. Um, and these are really sophisticated machine learning uh, examples that he was using. I mean, we're not talking about something that was created in, in a classroom from, from a, uh, an inexperienced person. So we're learning uh, an awful lot about how these algorithms with the data, their behavior. So can we trust them? The answer is sometimes. And, and, and we don't really have the science to decide which ones can we trust. Yeah. And which ones we can't. Uh, I mean, so like some practical applications that I've seen uh, over the years, like, you know, you train a model and you get more and more data and you get more and more understanding. Like, what's the point where you retrain a model? When does that happen? Um, how do you know it needs retraining? Why would you retrain it? And all of those good things, like it feels like the amount of information about training a model is quite, there's a lot out there. But then what you do after that, it seems right. to be a really weak area of, of, of expertise. I think, Tesla, anything... Go on. Yeah, I think Tesla is a good, uh, good place to look. Yeah. Um, uh, with Andre Karpathy, because he essentially collects uh, data from all of their machines, all of the vehicles that are out on the road, right. generate data, and that they're, they're continually collecting that data. And, you know, that there is an arbitrary point where this, they, they have enough uh, that they believe warrants a new model. The model is built in a data center, by the way. It's not built in the cars themselves. Yeah. So they collect all of the, the, the data, they build a new model, and then, and then they deploy it back to the, to the vehicles. But I think it's not like classical software. We really don't have an answer of when do you retrain a model. I think that the, the, the best we can do is when... Um, you begin to see that there is an unacceptable number of errors from the model yeah. that you have. You realize that um, you need a better, but you have to continually collect data. That's the other thing. Yeah, It's not a one, one shot thing where you build a model, you deploy it and you're good to go. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a really interesting one. And actually Paul, Paul was talking about how, you know, um, data quality is fundamental and common sense uh, is what he says in the, uh, in the chat window. But he's interested in actually understanding tools that might be uh, help you 
uh, get some control or understanding of the quality and the availability of the data. Have you got? Have you guys got any advice to someone who's looking at tooling in this space? Uh, Jonathan, maybe data quality isn't something I'm having to to sort of tackle right now. It's a, mm -hmm. a it's absolutely a, a huge problem. I mean, sort of you know, Varun mentioned this, and it's I'll, I'll just sort of opine really quickly. One of the things that every C-suite needs to be told is that eighty percent of a data scientist's time is spent on cleaning the data. <laughs> Now, you think about what a data scientist makes, and you think about the cost of that. And so Paul's question starts to become a really, really good one, yeah. uh, because uh, that's a very, very expensive problem that we need to solve. I'm just not the guy to answer it. Okay. Um, Felix, any ideas? There, there are some uh, techniques that are not as de dependent on data uh, as others. Right. Um, the human in the loop, you know, where you're, you're not planning on completely replacing the human being with one of these automated systems, I think is a good solution because humans are still uh, very good at, at spotting anomalies. Um, so if you're looking at augmenting uh, the capabilities of human beings rather than automating them, I think you're, you're, you're on, a, on solid ground. Um, that there are there are tools coming out of um, IBM. Um, Grady Booch is leading quite uh, quite a sort of tour de force in trying to bring the world of software engineering to some of these uh, machine learning and AI techniques. Right, um, and I think he's doing some good work. And Michael Jordan uh, that Varun mentioned um, is also working on that. There are some people out of um, uh, the Scandinavian countries, again, focused on bringing real software engineering techniques. It, it's, a, it's a developing field. I mean, you know, it's in its nascency. It's not, mm -hmm. um, so I tend to sort of, whenever I'm faced with a, with a green field is to use techniques like design thinking, SWOT analysis, what have you, to really just boot this thing up. And if you're in a regulator, you know, a, a, a business sector that involves regulators, then you know they want transparency they want explain explainability um the tools are just not there to to sort of um support those kinds of uh compliancy issues yeah i mean i've i've seen that one come up a lot with uh, with business leaders questioning technology leaders and saying great good that we've done this piece of deep learning on and we've built a model on such and such what <laughs> what is it doing? And it's a black box and nobody knows what it's doing. I mean, we can see what goes in and we can see what comes out, but actually what gets processed in, in between uh, is not always clear. And especially with these, um, these models that are, they're there, you just take them off the shelf. I mean, they, they literally are black boxes. And I think um, this area, so you know, Paul's question was, what is the availability of the tools? So what, what I think we're agreeing is, not that available um right. aaron would you would you argue that at all or would you agree that also there's the availability of the tools that help us do this are very low yeah i think it's still evolving and coming up so it will take a few years when we have you know some standards emerging in the market exactly. for, for sounds like a huge opportunity for any entrepreneur yeah. on the call yeah. um and 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 so this is an evolving field and i think that's a really uh, really interesting um 
people talk about these neural nets as if they're, you know, it's, it's, we've modeled the human brain. You know, that's the hype that I, I spend most of my time trying to break. If you go back to, to, to its roots uh, and sort of say, what is the model doing? It's fitting a curve to the data you've given it. You know, so asking it to explain, you know, imagine that, that you're basically, I mean, it's non-parametric data fitting mm -hmm. coming from statistics. So what, you know, asking the algorithm, what are you doing? I'm, you know, this is the best, curve that I could fit. It's the line of best fit. I mean, That's it's right. literally gradient descent. Like I decided this is the right line. That's right. It, it's the one that minimized errors. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and, but there are better techniques. I mean, you, you know, one of the, the techniques that Ian Goodfellow talks about is the uh, use of game theoretic. Right. So, you, you know, you have two, two neural networks and they're, and they're basically using game theory. Uh, to determine what is the best strategy. Now that's real scary stuff. I mean, I don't understand why people are not scared by this. Maybe, maybe they don't care. I don't know. But um, moving from gradient descent to get game theory is is, is a huge leap. Um, and and really, some of the reinforcement learning examples that you see for you know the two football players that one morning didn't know what football was by the afternoon, you know, they were playing a soccer game. Yeah. That uses sort of reinforcement learning coupled with game theoretic um, uh, underpinnings. Are you so, talking like a Nash equilibrium or something like yes. that? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it is a fascinating, it is a fascinating uh, field for sure. And um, the understandability for the lay person and i don't mean the lay computer scientist the lay statistician is really quite um there's a big gap between yes. a brilliant business person and their understanding of statistics and maths and 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 the things that are actually going on here um and that's no slight on anyone it's just the reality is is there is a big gap growing in terms of understandability in this field um so that you're saying, why are they not more scared? Or why are we not more scared? It's, I, I don't well, it's not the business people. It, it, it's the technical people the technical that worry people. me. I mean, you know, um, I had a discussion recently with, with quite a senior person. And um, he said, well, it's unusual for, for somebody who doesn't claim to be an expert in the field uh, of machine learning to, to have an understanding of adversarial um, examples and adversarial learning techniques mm. um so you know it's not just battling the um, the hype with regard to people who are business people i mean that that's that's just fair in my mind i mean why would they have the technical know-how of how this stuff works uh, but sometimes it's facing people that are in roles you know in positions of, of you know in executive positions um where it's not necessarily just inexperience of machine learning techniques, but inexperience of just distributed systems in general. I think this is where we kind of stray into kind of what, like what, there's lots of different classes of things we're talking about. We had one question a moment ago, which is, is AI just automation? Um, you know, and maybe we can talk about that. But in some cases, it is literally just a, a chatbot on your website or a chatbot in a, in a product. And like, you know, the, uh, the ethical challenges of that 
may be quite different to when we're, we actually have a, a question in Q&A about uh, lethal autonomous weapons, which we'll get onto in a second. That sounds like a much bigger issue than yeah. the chatbot. Um, uh, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the ethical implications for your your business and you know jonathan you mentioned something to me when we chatted around kind of advertising models and 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 that piece of actually um uh you know some of the things that were covered in things like the social dilemma and the attention and and and, and all of that do you want to give us a little bit of your thoughts there are times where if you ask me i would i, I would flip back and forth between what's the what's the the one technology that i would get rid of uh, half the time I would sell the smartphone because I think they're they're sort of destroying human beings. Uh, and the second is is social media and, and sort of very specifically the algorithms that that power it. You know, there there is zero ethical standing for almost all of these algorithms and, and advertising and personalization, all of these things are just it's sort of ethically bankrupt. I would probably say morally bankrupt because then you're 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 sort of using um, uh, sort of value-based judgments as opposed to to reason. But I think we could argue either without getting you know nuts. Their only purpose is to get you to consume more. And I want you to think about that for a second. And I like running a media business. I I struggle with this because. You know, uh, I want to make more money, which means getting people to read more articles so that I can serve more advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrible, horrible position to be in because you're giving them more of what they want, right? You're, you're not giving them more of what they need. Uh, you're giving them more of, of what they want. And, that, and, and that's, that's just an awful situation to be in, and, right? So I'll use sort of personalization as an example where if I read three articles uh, about Facebook, I'm gonna get a fourth article about Facebook, but I, I'm not reading the article because I care about Facebook. I'm reading the article to learn about privacy and the, the algorithms don't know that or they don't care, right? Because the, the model as we've pointed out knows that if I get a fourth article about Facebook, I'm more likely to click on it than I am about an obscure article about GDPR that's really dry that I need to know because I need to understand that. And, and so you, you see that in content recommendation. Uh, you see that uh, perpetrated through social, social media apps. It's, you know, Felix, you talk about data poisoning models, like social media is a giant data poisoning model because one piece of information that, that goes in that is wrong or disruptive, even if it's shared in sarcasm, gains legs and becomes bigger and bigger and then, and then goes and then destroys the whole model. Um, and, and so there's, there's not a lot of work on this, right? You know, the, the advertising systems are being honed to a razor's edge to know what we want to get it to us. And, and, and it's, you know, I as a human being have no value in that equation. I am, I am merely something that is going to consume the result of it. And so, you know, some, some pretty horrible advances in technology are being done uh, in the name of business. And I, I think that's probably just as scary as uh, autonomous weapons. 
Well, so Varun, well, how, what would you add to this about kind of your own industry and any ethical um, uh, thoughts on it? Um, I know you touched upon that human decision making um, previously. Would you add anything else? Yeah, I'll just a couple of comments, you know, but the, the whole book, The Bird Farm is about, you know, the impact of technology on society, right? And the two things which Jonathan spoke about, the mobile phone and social media talks a lot about that, right? And and I think the few things to understand is one, that technology is moving so fast. You're talking about business leaders not being able to understand it. Think about the government and think about the policymakers. They have no clue what's going on, right? They've been always distant from technology and now it's growing at such a rapid pace that uh, uh, no one has any clue. And, uh, and you know, it, it works both ways. They can make policies which can totally destroy technology. So they really don't know what is the way to manage some of these technologies uh, to make sure that they're used ethically and for the benefit uh, of the society. And the other thing which is stated, uh, you know, it's a very, very simple thing, but people generally miss the point. And there's this a person, good friend, Kentaro Toyama at University of Michigan, who wrote this book uh, called, uh, uh, forgetting the name of the book, it was Geek something. But uh, the, the whole idea of the book with what he says is that technology just amplifies things. That's what technology does. But finally, it's humans who are using technology in one way or the other. It can amplify greed. It can amplify consumption. It can amplify anything, right? It's just this huge uh, replicating force. But how it is being used is still in hands of humans, organizations, and policymakers. And though this is like stated very, it, it sounds very simple, but it's not very clear. People think that, oh, technology would automatically solve problems and automatically do things. Uh, so, so that's one perspective. If you look at our business and what we are in, uh, you know, which is assessing people and assessing people for jobs, the, the rightful use of technology, that's an extremely important uh, question for us. And, uh, you know, a lot of discussions today go within the business to how to make sure that, for example, our assessments are not racially biased. And there's sometimes simple things which we know that could uh, diminish the bias you can have with tools like this. And let me again give you a very simple example. Uh, scientific studies show that if you're doing th these tests between uh, uh, blacks and whites, the score difference is high. But if you just simply give them a demo test before the real test happens, that difference kind of goes down. You know, so if you're being careful, you can do these very simple things which makes some of these technologies less biased towards certain groups. Okay. Uh, and that is, as a business, we need to think uh, very, very carefully about it because, again, our mission also is to get the right person in the right job. And if you're not doing that, you know, the very principle of the business gets defeated. So I've got three um, kind of morally things, and we don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time, but I do think it's an important, um, uh, uh, important topic. So. Uh, Felix, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw three moral moral stories at you. <laughs> so the first is, who will a driverless car sacrifice in an accident? Um, uh, and like, so just talk us to a little bit more about how they might um, might might train. So let's start with that one, and I'm I'm gonna then read out what someone has written because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, uh, so if you start with that one, autonomous driving vehicles and making choice. We're trying to ask a machine to do something that we don't know how to resolve ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, dilemma. yeah, throw a die for all I care. <laughs> I mean, I'm not being callous, but, you know, how do we, how does a human being decide, you know, yeah. 
it's random. It, it, it's it's a it's a spot de decision on the moment they decide to, you know, make one decision or another. They don't and know this, why they did. And this moral dilemma has been around for many hundred years. years. And, and, like, yeah. and this is this is the classic moral dilemma. Okay, so this one, this can one. I, is, can I just go on? Um, we have a lot of technology because AI doesn't exist in a vacuum. We have a lot of technology that is very useful, that saves lives, you know, that is a truly positive value to add to human society. And we're stuck on, on, on philosophical problems that are conundrums, you know, paradoxes that yeah. we have no way of resolving. Yeah. And to sort of bring AI down and, and say, well, we're not going to deploy it until we can solve this problem, I think is a you know, is really sad because yeah. you, we can benefit from the good. Exactly. So here, here's the one I'm going to read out. Again, I just don't want to get it wrong. So um, there are already many semi-autonomous lethal weapons in use today that rely on AI-based autonomy for certain parts of their system, but have a communication link to a human that will approve or make decisions. There is a global aspiration to develop lethal autonomous weapons um, that uh, systems can identify, select, and engage a target without meaningful human control. Given the panel's comments so far on the limits of AI, is this a realistic aspiration? Should we be concerned about such an aspiration? Now, uh, obviously, this is straying into military and war applications, and, and we don't necessarily need to get into the, the good, but should we be concerned about such an aspiration? Feels like an easy question. Should be. <laughs> we should be concerned. I, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Full disclosure: I'm a former Marine, okay. uh, so uh, you know, I I, I have. This is on why that. we have diverse audiences, uh, Jonathan. So let's go. Yeah. I mean, look. So you're you're actually talking about what I consider one of the uh, um, easier problems to solve in AI, which is computer vision. So it, knowing what a thing is and right, and, and, and Felix made a great point about noise uh, in that and, and you know, how that, that, that changed the assessment, but you're, you're, you're talking about computer vision, recognizing an object and then looking at a threat matrix uh, for how dangerous that object is and then conditions for whether or not you should engage uh, said object. I, again, I think you can do sets of rule systems that have clear rules for engagement. Yeah. Uh, and again, you default to a, a place of safety, which says you, you do not do this if, if enough criteria aren't met. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I firmly believe Weapons have become so dangerous, and, and, and the U.S. military talks about this, that, that uh, war needs to be fought at a distance. Um, and, and so the more distance that you can provide and the faster that you can make these decisions about what is a threat and what isn't is going to save uh, people's, people's lives. And so, I, again, you know, I, I think there are some control mechanisms, but I, I, I do think there, there are weapon applications there that, that should be explored. Just as long as it's not pandas versus gibbons. Is right. 
Um, so uh, thanks for that. Um, and uh, just just to finalise the ethical moral piece, um, George has asked: Is online gambling an example of an industry with heavy AI use, where direct harms can be seen in general peaceful society feeding damaging behaviours? So similar to kind of that social dilemma that we were describing, you know, is gambling uh, another example of that? That's a tricky one. I mean, you know, humans were gambling long before we got them, you know. So I think to, I think the conclusion AI. that I'm coming from this piece is actually we've got some really human issues that we still have yeah. not resolved. And yeah. Varun's point about amplification is really key here. So we can just do these at more volume. We can impact more people's lives. And, and actually, as technology leaders, as business leaders, we do have an obligation to consider the ramifications and the impacts that we that we have. You know, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I think what we're agreeing is that AI has great power, and therefore we have to uh, take great responsibility. With I think. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Varun. No, I was just going to say, you know, Phil. I think one of the things which we need is that we need more technology people to talk to more social science people, and more of that happening at more formative years, which is not happening, right? And that conversation, because this is a conversation and humankind has given different answers to the same questions at different points of time. It, it's, you know, it's, it's an evolving question, but what we really, I think the big rift is that we don't have the sciences and the social sciences talking between themselves and the need today is more than it has been ever before. It's, and I think it's a great point. And actually we have one other question here, which I'll just touch on now. And we're going to stray a little away a bit from the moral stuff just for a second and get into kind of ramifications for business leaders and tech leaders, which is what are the skills and expertise we should be looking for? Like as an organization starts planning over the medium term, their approach to technology business and social sciences and all of these things like what is it that you would recommend to colleagues uh, as to how they should be hiring and what skills and capabilities they should be searching for i'll opine with with a general one uh which i think the number one skill that i'm starting to look for across the organization and it doesn't matter in what is data fluency not data science Yep. But but really understanding what data is, how it can be applied. I should have said R. My wife will kill me for using a singular instead of pluralizing it properly. Um, but but really understanding the difference between leading and trailing indicators, uh, vanity metrics, uh, how data can be applied. Just a, a good understanding of wanting data to make decisions uh, rather than than going with opinion. Uh, but I I think that needs to organization across. I agree completely to Jonathan. I think, you know, the simple example is that in the 90s, computer literacy started becoming a horizontal skill. Whatever job you are in, if you would know computers, you'll do better. Data fluency is now becoming a horizontal skill. So your, even your business leaders, anyone and everyone needs to have data skills. And I will go as far as saying that probably even programming to some ex ex extent, right? Even, I won't say probably programming, but scripting, is kind of becoming a horizontal skill. And companies like GE have done this, that where they've asked all their business leaders to uh, know, have data fluency, have programming, which is like so different from how they've conventionally worked. But that's that's the new, new reality uh, of the world. And one last comment would be that within data science and data engineering, we today have a much better understanding of 
what are the kind of roles as data engineer one, data engineer two, applied data scientists and so on, and what skills are required for them. So which this clarity was probably not there five years back, but now that clarity has been emerging and people could look at resources for uh, understanding what these roles are and what are the right kind of skill assessments for them. And we also do some of them uh, in our portfolio. Anything you'd add, Felix? I agree. I think within the, here, here's my speculation. Within the next 10 years, I think we're going to see statistics and computer science merge because they naturally belong with one another. Um, and, you know, whatever title they, they decide to call it um, will also require more, more effort into turning it into a software engineering type discipline. So I, anything that involves software engineering, data science, data engineering, I think is a good thing to go with. Plus, um, I would add that it, it's always good to have someone with some experience. Um, going on a, on a six-month course and then calling yourself a data scientist um, can be quite, um, quite a difficult issue for the manager because you don't really know the capabilities of that person. They have no track record of having built um, any kind of system at all and, and understanding how you know, systems interact. And the, uh, un, uh, I guess my, my main reason for saying that is um, uh, unintended consequences. Mm. You know, once you've started building some of these larger systems that where the components interact with one another and you sort of, you know, you realize that you hadn't even thought about what could come out. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because obviously we've we've strayed into morals and ethics and like the the impact that some of these things have got. And, and that idea of just about hiring someone who's got six months training experience and then kind of <laughs> putting them into a really major piece of uh, potential where like getting the data wrong can lead to poor consequences, you know, training the model incorrectly could like even just having a poor idea about and, and not putting the right checks and balances and validating. So it, it feels like there needs to be a real level of rigor and robustness that we put around some of these ideas. Um, and the term thoughtful, like a thoughtful approach, uh, like seems to be one that uh, needs to be uh, considered. Uh, well, I mean, do you, do you remember the Boeing, was it seven, Triple seven, or was it the seven eight seven, where um, the ba uh, the batteries were catching fire, and it turned out because it was an integer overflow. So you know we're still struggling to to have a decent software engineering discipline, and we're still you know we're we're sort of steering into the unknown with these sort of yeah. data driven models. Yeah, exactly. So um, I've got one, I've got a couple other questions that uh, uh, one that I don't understand. So uh, I'm going to put it out there and then you can let me know if you understand it as well. And so it says, what is the difference between weak AI and strong AI? I've not heard weak AI and strong AI, but weak algorithms and strong algorithms, the way we would understand is that weak algorithms are something which, uh, you know, which work for a wide variety of problems but may not solve any of them very, very well. And strong algorithms are which would work for one or two problems and solve them 
very, very well. Now, if you bring this to AI, what we know today is, and I'm sure Felix can speak a lot more on this, but I'll just give it a beginning is that the AI which we have today, which works, works for very narrow problems. You know, so it's a very narrow task, like classifying images. We can have very good, strong, maybe that's why he's calling it strong AI to solve that problem with very high accuracy. But as soon as those tasks become broad or multi-step, you know, which humans generally do, uh, AI is not able to handle those tasks as what we, what is the state of art today, right? And within AI, they call it artificial general intelligence, AGI, uh, and saying that AGI is not solved, that is tasks which are broad, multi-step, like, you know, when people talk about robotics, right, and dancing robotics, uh, robots, right, I mean, one thing which is, in the last 10 to 15 years, robots have made a lot of progress, but they cannot still do very simple things, right? Like 10 years back, they could not pick an object. Today, they can probably pick an object, but can they pack an object which they don't know about earlier in advance that what that object is, they still cannot do it, which humans do seamlessly. So very easily AI breaks, you know, when you have these tasks which are uh, you know, which are more broad and uh, more general. And probably that's what the person is alluding to. But again, if you'll go back to the academics and when the AI term was first coined, that's when what they meant when they were coining AI, that they would be able to do these general complex tasks. Excellent. Well, so I, I didn't even understand the question, so I appreciate uh, the attempt at an answer. Um, we have about eight minutes left. So I thought maybe just a final thought from each of you around just kind of what would be some key recommendations to business leaders or technology leaders who are more likely to be on um, on this call at the moment um, what would you what would your advice be and maybe Felix you could lead the way here there's an awful lot of uh, good things that uh, machine learning and uh, AI have brought to the table and I think it's important to, um, to use them for, for the, if you like, AI for good. Um, uh, and some of them sort of piggybacking on the comment that Jonathan made earlier about autonomous weapons, um, people sort of say, well, you're automating jobs. Um, I watched uh, a video of, of a human being packing pencils into a box, you know, eight hours a day. That's a soul-destroying job. You know, reading uh, addresses on an envelope and typing them. Um, so automating some of these jobs, uh, in my opinion, is a good thing. As long as we, we hold ourselves responsible to then provide them with a career path, you know, away from that position. So, you know, give them something else to do, retrain them, what have you. Um, just to throw them out into the street, I think, is, is unethical. But, um, you know... If you look at the example of X-ray systems, those systems can see um, uh, phenomena that humans cannot. You know, much like we couldn't we couldn't see much of the universe without a telescope. We couldn't see much of the the nature without a microscope. I think that's for me. That's where AI is at the moment. It's providing a really useful instrument. Uh, and you know, I, I I would like to end on a positive note and say these technologies exist as long as you don't push them to the edge i think they're very useful I, and i think that's a really good uh, it's a really good rallying cry actually felix like there is so much opportunity the amount of compute power we have today the amount of things that we can do uh, now is is phenomenal and it is good to seek the good as well as talk about the 
the morally challenging as well. Um, thank you. Jonathan, what would you add? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. What I would add is, is that even if you're talking about AI products and, and doing something with AI, you're still building a product. So don't start with the AI. You know, keep focused on the three criteria that all good products have, right? They are usable, useful, and desirable, right? They have to be usable. Somebody has to be able to use the tool. They have to be able to get what they need out of it. It has to be useful. It has to do something of value. And then it has to be desirable. There has to be a reason you want to do it or that you want to use it. And, and AI is a tool like any. And if your product doesn't meet those three criteria, just because you have used the latest buzzwordy thing and maybe get a raise for it, your product is still going to fail if you don't make those three criteria. It's a good, uh, good reminder. And uh, Varun, how would you uh, end, end this talk then? So firstly, I'll endorse Jonathan's point. You know, I think that is the single one most important thing which, uh, you know, business leaders and technology leaders should engage themselves in is what is the product being created using AI and be part of those discussions and make sure value is being created for the customer and understand what value is being created uh, for the customer. And I just would want to add, you know, what we have already said, but as concluding remarks, like walking the talk, I think, uh, our attendees should also get the data fluency skill and uh, you know really encourage people who are both in technology and business uh, in business you know to learn some of these skills there's a lot of hype but if you scratch the surface it's not very hard to understand at a big picture what ai can do can't do and what are the use cases and rather than living in you know in the bubble of this hype and what media is pouring on all of us, including robots, which have become citizens of countries, which really, at least to me, makes no sense. You know, they can scratch the surface and understand what is really going on. They, they don't need to understand all the techniques, but they want to need to understand the big picture. And what I would, I would, you know, uh, lean on the attendees here is that get those, get that understanding themselves, and in fact, to their technology and business leadership skills. There's plenty very short courses out there which people can take online. And, uh, you know, and some of them are built for executives because of the amount of misinformation which is out there. Because if you really want to build AI products, you need to understand it uh, in the big picture as a team. And you cannot just, you know, have an AI team sitting in the corner and doing some magic and that would not work. And I'm sure SHL and the Aspiring Minds team, uh, Varun, are already looking to figure out how to sift and find these types of characters for the workplace, right? So, sure, like. Sure. <laughs> we can you know i mean that's also a very interesting question there is uh, you know what a lot of companies ask is that we do have tools for finding data scientists and data engineers assessing them but what country companies are looking for which is very interesting is that who has the potential to become a data scientist or data engineer because a lot mm -hmm. of companies are training a lot of people now on uh, on these skills and they want to know that what subset of their current people should they pick up and train in these skills? And that becomes like a more interesting problem on assessing people for that potential to pick up these new technologies. And it's a good point. I mean, obviously say like the, the company I'm representing, Ultimera AI, they spend a lot of time thinking about developing the skills, training people internally, trying to create, you know, take computer scientists out of university, but delivering the, you know, you know the data fluency, the data insights, the statistics, the maths, and all of that stuff that has to go with it in order to, to create great products. And um, 
I think we'll see much more of this over the coming uh, coming years. So on that note, we have one minute left. So I'm going to hand it back to Phil. I really appreciate the conversation, guys. Uh, really enjoy your expertise and your insights and you know your clear wisdom on this topic. And um, thank you so much. I'd just like to echo that. Thank you, everyone, for um, um, taking part. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. A particular huge thank you to uh, you, the panelists, and Phil for you know, being a superb host once again. Um, the conversation doesn't stop there. Please contact us via you know, Technofresh. Seek us out on LinkedIn. I want people to become part of the collective so we can keep these conversations going over and over again. Our, our plan is to do a number of these throughout this year. I'm really keen to get you know, as many people involved as we can to become expert panelists, just you know, reach out to us. And of course, the one thing I'll take away immediately is we'll get our team looking for data fluency skills. So TalentSmart can become number one supplier of that skill going forward. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a heads up for the future recruitment trend, which is, which is always brilliant. But thanks to everyone for giving the time. It's been a marvelous event and I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much.